We're in the book of Acts, <laughs> and we're in the middle chapters of the book of Acts, where we're looking at um, Acts chapters uh, around 6 to around chapter 11, and the series that we're looking at is entitled Antioch, A Church for All, because it's in these chapters of the book of Acts where you see the church in Jerusalem going from a predominantly uh, mono-ethnic church, a Jewish church in Jerusalem, and then through these five or six chapters, you get to Antioch, and by the time the church gets to Antioch, you have a, a multi-ethnic church. Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles, and, and everyone. And so I've entitled this series from Acts chapter, six, uh, Acts chapter 6 to 12, Antioch, a Church for All. And I guess that's what I really want to press on and, and push us on this morning. Is, are we really a church for all people? I'm not just talking about OCBC, I'm talking about mainly the church in, in Canada. Are we considered to be a church for all people? A church where people from all walks of life, um, all social classes, all backgrounds could, could come and to find a place through Jesus Christ in the family of God. Um, one of my favorite books, a book that I read when I was an early Christian, was uh, Philip Yancey's What's So Amazing About Grace. And I believe in the introduction to that book, he talks about how he was interviewing a, a, a prostitute in Chicago, and she was talking about her life, and she was talking about what led her to, uh, into that lifestyle of prostitution, and about how she had children, she needed to provide for them, and she needed help, and that's the, basically, that's the, the way, the easiest, easiest way, or most readily way that she could make income to feed her kids. And he said to her, he said, well, have you ever considered you know, going to a church and, and seeking help from a church. And she said to him in the introduction, Yancey recalls, she says to him, why would I ever go to a church? I already feel bad about myself enough. And the idea being, I mean, the, the thought being, if the church, in the book he goes on to say, if the church is a place in which our message is one of grace and our message is one not only of grace for forgiveness of sins, but a message of transformation, then this is the place that, this would be the place that all people would need to come in order to find a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I mean, if you think through your friends, is the church the place where you really truly believe that the church is a place for all, that we could bring anyone, any background, any time to here, and they'll find a place not keeping on social judgment, but they'll be confronted with true justice in the holiness of God, and, and, and that they would hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Along the way in the book of Acts, I told you we would be introduced to five groups of people, so we can go advance forward here. So the five groups of people, Antioch, a church of all, we talked a little bit about, we would see these different, be introduced to these groups of people as we're going through, the Hebrews and the Hellenistic Jews, we saw them in the Jerusalem church. They were, they were not necessarily divided people. They, they both were Jewish people, but they had different levels of assimilation into the broader Roman culture around them. And we saw that there was tension already when the church was just made up of Jewish people. There was already tensions that had come up and groups that had come up. But we saw like Philip and Stephen were part of these Hellenistic Jews, these next generation leaders that were, were going to bring the expansion of the church outside of Jerusalem. And we saw in Acts chapter 8 a few weeks ago how the first expansion of the church outside of Jerusalem was actually undertaken through uh, the persecution that happened after one of these Hellenistic Jews, Stephen, uh, lost his life as a martyr at the temple. And in Acts chapter 8, uh, the church 
was scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria, and Philip, one of the evangelists who was scattered with the people, actually it was, it was mostly just the individual Christians that went proclaiming the gospel to the people, but Philip, one of the, the, those who had been raised up as an evangelist, went, and he preached the gospel to the Samaritans, which was a, a, another people group that we saw the gospel bringing walls down from. The, the Samaritans were despised by the Jewish people, and now here in Acts chapter 8, they've been included into the church through them coming to believe in Jesus Christ. We're going to see in the book of Acts an ongoing expansion. We're going to see good Gentiles, I call them. Good Gentiles are God-fearers. They were, they were Gentiles who just hadn't taken the step into Judaism, but they, they loved and they worshipped the God of the Bible. And then we'll see the gospel even go to bad Gentiles who were the pagans in the temples worshipping idols. This is good and bad from the sight of you know, the, the Jewish mindset. And so this section of the book of Acts, where, where we've called it a church for all people, primarily and predominantly focuses on the ethnic expansion of the church. But here in Acts chapter 8, we're introduced to someone who's not singled out because of his ethnic identity, but nevertheless, his inclusion in the church is highlighted by Luke, the author of the book of Acts, by the Holy Spirit who's inspiring Luke to write this book, his inclusion in the church is highlighted as yet another wall that is coming down. And he's going to press the boundaries of the church even further as we ask the question, when we say a church for all, do we actually mean a church for all? I'm going to read in Acts chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. We're good there. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet. In, that, in those days, you, nobody read silently. If you read in those days, you would read out loud. So Philip hears him reading. He was reading the prophet Isaiah, the spirit said, go, and, and so Philip, verse 30, ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generations, for his life is taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And that's actually what we looked at last week on Easter. We actually went to Isaiah 53, where that, those verses are found, and, and we looked at how Jesus was the revelation of God to us, the servant who was going to come and be light into the darkness. He was the suffering servant who was going to come and give his life as an offering 
for sin, and he was going to be the victorious servant who was going to divide the spoils with the strong through his conquering of death itself. And how Philip, beginning with that passage of Scripture, went and explained to him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through and preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Thus far God's word. So we're introduced to this man, this individual here in this passage, Who's this individual? In verses 26 and 27, Nathan, you can flip ahead here. In verses 26 and 27, we're given a lot of description about this individual. He's called, uh, for example, he's called Ethiopian as to his place of origin. Now, this isn't the Ethiopia we think of today. This was, uh, in, that, in that day and age, this was in Sudan, really, is where, where this gentleman was from. So he's, but he's called an Ethiopian. Uh, the Romans just basically called everybody from that part of the world Ethiopian. He's Ethiopian as to his place of origin. He's called a court official as to his occupation. He's described as being in charge of the treasury of the queen as to his social status and power. And a little, couple little bit about other things about this background. Though he's called an Ethiopian, he is likely a Jewish person. And, and the reason that it's thought that is that Luke takes very clear pains when Cornelius, a guy named Cornelius, is introduced in the, in the next couple of chapters. Cornelius is counted as the first Gentile convert, and it's made a big deal that Cornelius is the first Gentile convert. And so this man, though he's, like, he's from Ethiopia, is likely a considered Jewish. Um, but the specific quality of this individual that Luke points out again and again, in fact, five times in this passage, is that not about his ethnic identity, it's not about his status, it's about that he is a eunuch. What's highlighted for us in this passage, not his ethnic identity, but rather, as one commentator notes, the eunuch is portrayed as someone who is on the fringes of Judaism, marginalized within the people of God, and who is drawn into the fellowship of Christianity through Philip's teaching about Jesus. So, eunuch. What's, what's a eunuch? It might be a new word for some of you. What is a eunuch? There's been discussion over the years as what entailed a eunuch at this point in history, in the ancient world. Initially, the classification was reserved for those men who, was, who were either born with or suffered some physical impairment so that they were incapable of, of reproducing. I don't need to go into any more detail than that. Just that they were either born with or, or had suffered some sort of physical impairment, so they're unable to reproduce. Now, it doesn't mean necessarily that they weren't married. We have in the Bible uh, at least one story of a married eunuch, which you may not know, but uh, Potiphar, who is a servant of the Pharaoh, is also called a eunuch, and we know he had a wife, and that might shed some light on to why the wife was so intent on getting to Joseph. Um, so, the, so a eunuch could have been married, but the, the idea was a eunuch was just someone who was not able uh, to reproduce through some sort of either born malady or physical impairment. 
Uh, by the time of the New Testament, there is the, the, the term had expanded to include various different types of eunuch. Eunuch is an umbrella term, and there's various different types of eunuchs within that umbrella term. For example, when Jesus is talking about marriage, in Jesus, they asked Jesus a question. Actually, they asked Jesus a question about divorce in Matthew chapter 16. And Jesus affirms what had been revealed in the Mosaic Law about marriage when he says marriage is between a man and a woman for life. Right? He says, for this reason, Moses, or God said, uh, make them, uh, <laughs> behold, the two shall become one flesh. And he created the man and female, and the two shall become one flesh, and therefore what God has put together, let no man put asunder. And his disciples said, if that's the teaching about marriage, if you can't just get in and get out of it easily, then who would, desire, who would, who would be able to be married? And Jesus says, uh, this teaching is not for all. And he says very matter-of-factly, Nathan, we can uh, go ahead to what Jesus had put in the next one. Jesus says matter-of-factly, go back. There we go. For there, he says, it is true, not all can accept this teaching. And Jesus says, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus says there's an umbrella teaching about eunuchs, but, but there's the, it, within the culture of that day, it was a matter of fact that there were different types of eunuchs. And, and now some of these categories are pretty easy for us to understand. The eunuchs who, um, the eunuchs who are uh, the third category, the, the eunuchs who make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, that's generally understood as those who choose to live single, celibate lives for the sake of Christ. So, for example, Paul speaks about his calling as a single man. And he says there's much benefit in serving Christ. There's much benefit in the mission of the church. I mean, you're not wrong if you marry, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7. But I wish somebody would consider, you know, the benefits of singleness. It's kind of what Paul writes. And so someone who chooses to remain celibate and single for the sake of the kingdom of God would fit into that third category. The second category seems pretty obvious. Those who have been made eunuchs by men were those who, either through slavery or through conscription, were, were used by kings and, and made, uh, through castration, made eunuchs. It's the first category that's a little bit interesting to us, eunuchs by birth. Those who were by born with an incapacity uh, or a physical impairment, possibly, in that they're incapable of reproducing and thus were likely to have lived single lives. These today, these would obviously include what we today, and in the past they were referred to as hermaphrodite, and today we, we often call a category of people, um, the, the word we use today is intersex, those who are born with some sort of ambiguity, uh, physical malady of, or an ambiguity to their, their biological sex and gender. Um, and there are some, and there are some conservative Bible scholars like Robert Gangnan, who believe it's possible and probable that this category of eunuch would have included those who were of a homosexual inclination, that they were those who would not desire procreation. They would not have desired rec uh, relationship with the opposite sex. And so they also would have been categorized in this category of eunuch. So we don't know what sort of eunuch this is in Acts chapter 8. It is likely because of his status uh, in Candace's court, it was likely that he would have been a maid eunuch, but we don't know. 
that's what a eunuch is. What was, what did, how did people feel about eunuchs in the ancient world? Well, we actually have some uh, data of how people thought of eunuchs. They often had p powerful positions in empires, but we actually have some data about what people thought of them. Josephus is the most famous Jewish historian from the time of uh, the book of Acts. In fact, he was writing about the same time Luke was writing. And Josephus writes of eunuchs, and this is what, how Josephus uh, speaks of eunuchs, and I'm sorry for the small text. I wanted to put the whole quote up there, but you can read along. This is how Josephus, so this is, Josephus is a Hellenistic Jew. Like Philip, who went to this eunuch, probably would have had the same worldview as Josephus. And this is how Josephus spoke of eunuchs. He says, let those who have made themselves eunuchs be held in detestation. And do you avoid any conversation with them who have deprived themselves of their manhood? and of that fruit of generation which God has given to men for the increase of their kind. Let such be driven away as if they had killed their children, since they beforehand have lost what should procure them. For evident it is that while their soul is become effeminate, they have withal transfused that effeminacy to their body also. In like manner do you treat all that is of a monstrous nature when it is looked upon nor is it lawful to geld men or any other animals. And the word that really sticks out from that is monstrous. Monstrous, and it's an interesting word because that same word turns up also in a Roman writing of the same kind, uh, a guy by the name of, who is that guy? Of Lucian, Lucian of Sarasota. Well, this is a little bit later, 50 to 100 years later. He writes a play, he was a playwright, he was a co comedian basically. And he writes a play called The Eunuch. And it reveals the sort of mocking and contempt that eunuchs experienced in the Greco-Roman world. Uh, the, the play is really interesting. It's about a page. You can read it. It's a really interesting play. And it's kind of funny. But all of the jokes are at the expense of this eunuch. What happens in this play is there's two philosophers that are having a debate. And one of the philosophers finds out that the other philosopher is a eunuch. And so he takes... They go in front of the judges of the city and they have this debate in front of the city about whether this eunuch would be proper for a eunuch to be a philosopher. And they make fun of him because he has no beard and they make fun of him because he has no other parts and they, 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 have, they make the whole joke is on the, at the expense of this eunuch who's teaching philosophy. And the eunuch is portrayed both by the main characters who are telling the story and by the judges. Uh, they speak of the eunuch as being neither man nor woman, but something composite, hybrid, and monstrous, alien to human nature, an ambiguous sort of creature like a crow who cannot be reckoned either with the doves or the ravens. And upon these remarks, the whole crowd around begins to laugh and to scorn at this eunuch. And it says, upon those remarks, everyone began to laugh as was natural, while Bagoas, the eunuch, fell into greater confusion and was beside himself, turning all colors of the rainbow and dripping with cold sweat. And the punchline of the play, the final line of the play, the punchline is it, is the man saying to his companion, I really hope that my son, when he grows up, will have all the proper tools for philosophy. There was opportunity in the ancient world. So, so this is the status of eunuchs in 
the ancient world, both the Jewish conception of the ancient world, the Roman conception of the ancient world. Now there was, on the other hand, a way for eunuchs to rise in society. The eunuchs also would have risen to positions of influence. Eunuchs were often trusted advisors and managers of powerful kings because it was the greatest danger in the ancient world for a king was what? If you're a king in the ancient world, what's the greatest danger? That someone would supplant you in order to put their children on the throne. So eunuchs were, in a sense, trusted in the ancient world by kings because they would have no children to put on the throne were they to supplant you. And so eunuchs were often, uh, they would... Um, they would take care, like you see this eunuch in Acts chapter 8, he's taking care of Candace's treasury. Uh, they often would take care of the harem. In fact, in the Greek word for eunuch literally means keeper of the beds, because they would keep the harem. And this particular Ethiopian, as we saw in the text, has risen to considerable influence in Candace's court. So it's a weird, it's a weird space that the eunuchs played in their society. They, they both were scorned, but often were put into very powerful positions. So now that we have a little bit of the background, let's go back into this story. Jump back in. Acts chapter 8, verse 6. We'll read it again. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go down south toward the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasures. We see here, here's something really important. We here see here the Lord directly sending Philip to go find this guy, this eunuch. The angel of the Lord, actually, the angel of the Lord says to Philip, they send, God sends an angel to Philip, get up from your bed and go and find this guy, and he's in the wilderness. Now remember where Philip is. Philip is in Samaria. Philip has been doing an ongoing ministry that we looked at a couple weeks ago, a flourishing of the ministry in Samaria, and God tells him, leave this flourishing ministry and go and find this outcast in the desert. Really? Go away from that place of sexual ministry into the desert to meet with this monstrosity, this eunuch. And so we, we keep on reading about this eunuch. He had come to Jerusalem. Uh, next one, Nathan. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now I want you to consider this, this eunuch here. I want you to consider this man and his devotion to the Lord. This, this was a man, he served, in, uh, he, served in the, he served in the courts of Candace. Now Candace, hi, where's Candace? Hi, Candace. There's Candace, actually, she's like looking around. Candace, guess what? The queen's name wasn't Candace. Candace is what you call the queen of Ethiopia. It was a title. And her, her, her city, her capital city was in a city called Minoe, which was in the middle of what we call today Sudan. And, and you know, you have to, in order to get from Sudan, which is south of Egypt, and in order to get to Israel, you would have to travel some pretty treacherous roads. The distance between Jerusalem and Manoe is the same distance from Ottawa to Saskatoon. All right? That's a long way. When you travel from Ottawa to Saskatoon, you would travel either by plane, likely. In fact, most of us would just be like, forget about it, I'm taking the plane. If you drive, you're taking an air-conditioned car. He is driving through desert on a chariot to get to Jerusalem. It would have taken, if not weeks, months. 
And after traveling all that way, he arrives in Jerusalem to worship the Lord. Now, he, like many pilgrims to the Roman Empire, Jewish pilgrims, would travel to Jerusalem for festivals. His, given his distance, this is probably some, not something he did every year, but this is an opportunity of a lifetime for him to go to Jerusalem to be part of the festivals. So imagine, after traveling all that way, he arrives in Jerusalem to worship the Lord. He gets to Jerusalem, and maybe he's met some pilgrims along the way, and, and so they invite him to share in the festivities with them. And so they're out feasting, they're out, they're out get, you know, they get into Jerusalem late, they're feasting, they're dining together, they're all so excited because they're in Jerusalem, the city of God, and they're all excited, and they're making plans for the next day to go up, to get their sacrifices ready, and to go up to the temple and to worship the Lord. They've been traveling for months to get here, and now they're here. And so they start making their plans. You ever travel with a party, and then you make the plans, okay, where are we going to meet? We're going to meet in the hotel lobby, we're going to go over, and they... they they say, okay, well, here's our plan for the next day. We're going to meet here. We're going to go to the outer courts. We're going to buy the sacrifice that we need. And then we're going to go in and approach the Are we all in? And the eunuch says, that's great, guys. I'm, I'm just going to wait out here. You, you guys go in. You guys go get the sacrifice. You guys go take it into the temple. I'm, I'm fine. I'm just going to wait out here. And they're like, well, what do you mean? You traveled here for three months. You traveled 3,000 kilometers to get here. What do you mean you're not going to go into the temple of the Lord? And he's like, under Mosaic law, units were not allowed to approach the temple. They were not allowed to enter into the assembly of the Lord. So this eunuch, though he was Jewish, though he traveled all the way, that he came to go and he came to go and worship the Lord in Jerusalem, was not actually allowed. He was forbidden. He was prohibited to approach the temple with the rest of the worshipers. Yet he came anyway. Imagine that prohibition. But but he came. And the trip wasn't an entire loss. Rather than being discouraged in his faith, while he was in Jerusalem, the eunuch was able to purchase a scroll of Isaiah. Now, I had that scroll. I was going to bring it out in the scroll, my Chinese scroll. He was able to purchase a scroll from Isaiah. And after spending some time in Jerusalem, he, he was traveling home. And though he couldn't approach the Lord in the temple, he did what could only be the next best thing. He, he was able to use, he, was, he had considerable funds at his disposal, and he bought a scroll of Isaiah. Now, in the ancient world, you didn't just go into, I don't know, Salem Christian Bookstore. There was no Christian bookstores in the ancient world. You couldn't just like go to Amazon.com and get the scroll of Isaiah sent to me. He's in Jerusalem. He makes a major purchase, a scroll of Isaiah. Isaiah is one of the longest books in the Old Testament. Uh, this would have been one of the most expensive purchases he could have made. And he buys the scroll of Isaiah, and as he's traveling home on the chariot, he unscrolls it to that passage in Isaiah 53 that we read last week, and he says, what is this even talking about? Who is this guy? And as he's reading it, Philip comes up to him. And as he's reading it, as he's reading this unbelievable story of God's grace, Philip runs up to him and says, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invites Philip to come up and sit with him. Now remember, Josephus, who was a Hellenistic Jew, just like Philip said, do not have anything to do with eunuchs. Find them detestable. Do not do everything you can to avoid conversation with him. And the eunuch says, come on up here and join me in the chariot. And Philip says, yeah, sure. And he goes up and he takes advantage to share Jesus with this guy. And go on to the next. Now the message of scripture that he was reading, and we looked at that, let's go to the next one. 
This is what we preached last week from Isaiah 53. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I asked, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? And Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, he tells him the good news about Jesus. And this is an unbelievable story of God's grace. The eunuch had come to Jerusalem to worship the Lord with the people, but having been sent away from the temple, now the Lord sends Philip to find him. He could not approach God in the temple, so God sends the gospel to him. And he learns, and Philip unfolds for him from Isaiah 53, that Jesus was God, and that Jesus had come into the flesh, and had come into our world, and had come to reveal God to us, had come to take on our sins upon himself, and had come to victoriously rise from the grave and give us overcoming life in him. And look at how the Spirit of God moves in the heart of the eunuch. Verse 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch is hearing the gospel. He's hearing about how Christ has died for his sins. How Christ has provided a way that he could come freely to God through the sacrifice of Jesus. And and he's heard the same message that has been preached again and again through the book of Acts, that God has commanded and is declaring to everyone to turn from their sins and to turn to Jesus Christ in faith and then then profess that faith, express that faith through baptism. And so the eunuch hears this and he sees water and he says to Philip, behold, here's water, what prevents me from being baptized? And he doesn't wait for a class to be offered. He hears and he understands the good news about Jesus. He hears and he hears the command to repent and to be baptized. And he says, here's water, let me in. But look at the question he asks. Look at his question. This is only a question you ask if you expect prohibition. It's only a question you ask if you expect rejection. He says to Philip, behold, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized. You only ask that question if you've already been turned away from approaching God and his people. And there's a lot of fear in that question. And the answer is so simple. Now verse 37, I have it in brackets because it's skipped in many modern translations because it's probably not part of the original writing of the book of Acts, although it contains within it what, has, what, what scholars think is a baptismal confession, and that's probably how somebody wrote it in the margins and then later got put in through some of the copies, but verse 37 says, he said to them, if you believe with your whole heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Whether or not that's original to the text, it's true. And verse 38 says, he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. The eunuch, excluded from God's people at the temple, is now gathered into God's people as a full member of the body of Christ. It's amazing. It's amazing grace. It's an amazing gospel. It's an amazing act of God gathering his church together, a church for all people. As we said each week, each of these chapters of the book of Acts in this section are demonstrating how God tears down walls that divide people to gather people together into his church. 
Hebrews, Hellenistic Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles. Luke records that each ethnic expansion of the church, but, but here's a different type of expansion, and it's singled out into the inclusion of the eunuch. Now, there's something interesting about that he was reading from the scroll of Isaiah. And I don't know this. It's one of those things where I kind of hope and think it was true. But if you turn to Isaiah 53, and imagine we've got a scroll here. And I've got Isaiah 53 here. And I've just come to Christ. He's just told me about Jesus through Isaiah 53. It wouldn't be too much to imagine that Philip then took the scroll and rolled it one more page. Because in Isaiah 56, the book of Isaiah contains words that would have been very appropriate to have shared with this eunuch as he's come to Christ, as he's come to faith in Christ, as he's come to God through Christ. Isaiah 56 is amazing. Two chapters later, in the book of Isaiah, and they didn't have chapters, so it was probably one wrist turn of the scroll. Isaiah 56, verse 3. You can go on here, Nathan. Is God's word of hope for eunuchs. There's actually a specific word of hope that God records for eunuchs in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 56. It says this. He speaks to foreigners, and then he speaks to eunuchs. It says in verse 3, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not, and here's where it starts to the eunuchs, Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths. And remember, this is a pun. I didn't mean to keep that in the slide. But remember, this is a pun, the word eunuch meaning keeper of the bed. And God says to the eunuchs, to the eunuchs who keep my commandments, to my, my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. There's a couple things here, really important, then and now. You have here in this passage, and you have here applied in Acts chapter 8, that there is in the gospel a promise of radical inclusion. Nowhere in the Bible do we see the sorts of comments that we saw in Josephus or Lucian about the monstrous eunuchs or counsel that we should hold them in detestation or avoid even talking to them. Instead, what we have in this promise and applied in Acts chapter 8 is God promising to the eunuchs a place for them within his walls. And we see this now in the gathering of the eunuch in Acts chapter 8. Through baptism, he is brought into the household of God. So we see in the gospel a promise of radical inclusion. Secondly, we see here in this passage that the criterion for inclusion, oh Nathan, you can go forward here, next one, that the criteria for inclusion in the household of God 
is the same for all. God's standards for holiness and his law does not change according to our situation just because of who we are. God doesn't have different standards for men and then for women and then for eunuchs. He doesn't have different standards. He doesn't have a different sexual ethic that we can apply differently to different cases. The standards for inclusion in the household of God are the same for all. Notice verse 4. It says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant. God's standards do not change according to our situation. Now, notice that this verse assumes that there will be eunuchs just like there will be men and just like there will be women and just like there will be Jews and just like there will be Gentiles and just like there will be rich people and just like there will be poor people. It assumes that there will be eunuchs who do not keep his commandments. It assumes that there will be eunuchs who do not keep the Sabbath, who do not seek the things that please God, and who do, do not hold fast to covenant. But that's immaterial. It's immaterial who you are. God's standard does not change. And so he says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who hold fast to my commandments, and who do the things that please me, there will be a place in my house. I will bring them in. And we see here in the New Testament, we hear the gospel. The gospel is this. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. All of us, all of us have failed to keep covenant. All of us have failed to, to seek the things that please. In fact, God says in Romans 3, there is not one who seeks me. There is no one who pleases me. And so the remedy is for all of us to come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And the forgiveness that is found in Christ is offered to all freely as a gift by his grace, no matter who we are, high or low. And so the gospel of grace is offered to all, to all who come to God through Jesus Christ. We're, we're gathered in together into the same household, but then we still are then given and poured into us the power of the Holy Spirit so that we might do the things that the law requires, that we might not only seek to be righteous, but that we might actually be the Holy Spirit will begin to produce righteousness in us. And so we don't lower the standards. We don't change God's ethics. What we do is we call all to repentance and faith in Christ. And then we welcome all to walk alongside of us as we seek to grow in Christ and to grow in holiness. And third, this is really amazing. Verse 3, or the third one. God promises a fulfilling life for his eunuchs. The promises God shares in Isaiah 56, verses 3 to 5, are very special and very unique to eunuchs. Whether they are natural-born eunuchs, whether they're made eunuch by men, or simply those who are single by situation or choice. And notice the fear, the big fear. Behold, let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. What does a dry tree not do? Produce fruit. And so God says, I, un I understand that either because you were born eunuch, made eunuch, eunuch by situation, or eunuch by choice, I know your greatest fear is that you'll have no family to share and to pass on your lineage to. When I've talked to people who are facing lifelong singleness. When I've shared with you and, and you've shared with me about 
whether God may not have or maybe you don't have the ability that you feel to be in a relationship. When I talk to Christians who experience same-sex attraction and they, they say, I, I do believe that God is calling me to follow Jesus and that I will be living a single celibate life unless, unless God intervenes and changes. That, uh, the fear that I hear again and again is I won't have a family. And God says to them, behold, let not the eunuch say, I'm a dry tree. The eunuch is especially susceptible to the specific pain that he or she will never bear fruit, bear children. But look what God says. He says, I will give in my house and within my wall. So first, I will bring you into my family. I will bring you into my house. And I will give you in my house and within my walls a monument and a name that is better than sons and daughters. God promises them that they can find a place in his family. And to those who are worried that they will not have any descendants to whom they could pass on their name, God says to them, I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And there's a myth in our culture and there's a myth in our church that in order to have a satisfying, fulfilling, or fulfilled life, in order to really be a human being in all of its fullness, there's a myth in our culture and in the church, it says, the only way I can live a fulfilled life is to find a partner and to, 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 be, to, to have the intimate relationship with my partner and then to bear children. And that's the only life that matters. And what the Bible says through this whole section of, of speaking of eunuchs in the Old Testament and eunuchs in the New Testament and, and speaking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 about singleness in a marriage, what the Bible affirms, what the New Testament affirms, what the apostles affirms over and over again is our fulfillment is in our Creator and in Him alone. And if you're looking for fulfillment through a person or a relationship or children, you are going to destroy those things. You're going to destroy that which God has given to us as good things because we make them into idols. Because we make them into our sole and only pursuit that will give us fulfillment. And God says, I am promising you, eunuchs, whether you're eunuch by birth, eunuch by someone who's made you eunuch circumstance, or eunuch by... I am promising you a name that is better, a monument that's better than children, and a name that cannot be cut off. And so what we have done in the church and what we've done in the culture is we've idolized this only this married life matters and we're, you're not fulfilled unless you're finding sexual fulfillment, marital fulfillment, you're not living a full life. And if that is the case, if that is true, then we have a very huge and radical theological problem in the church. A huge and radical theological problem in the church. Jesus. Fully God. Fully human. Never married. Never intimate in that way. Never bearing children. So we have a huge theological problem if we elevate a married life over a single life. If we despise and we put yokes on the backs and shoulders of eunuchs in our culture. And we give the impression that the only life that matters is one that bears fruit. Let not eunuchs say, behold, I am a dry tree. I will give them within my house and within my walls a monument and a name 
that will be better than children. And thus we see that the church of Jesus Christ is truly a church for all. It is truly a church for all. And I don't know what your story is, and I don't know what your friend's story are, and I don't know what your kids' stories will be. But I pray that if they fit into any of the categories of modern-day eunuchs, I pray that they would see that there's not only hope, but a great promise that through Jesus Christ there is life, that through Jesus Christ there is forgiveness of all of our sins, that through Jesus Christ there's a monument and a name that cannot be cut off. I pray that we as a church will be family for eunuchs in our culture. They might be divorcees who feel not the freedom to remarry because of some of the New Testament teachings on divorce and remarriage. They may be lifelong singles in our culture right now For the first time, we have a majority of adults in our culture are single. There are eunuchs all around us. The hope of the gospel is that the gospel is a gospel for all and that the church is a church for all.